everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Bayer State Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Raman. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Nicole Holland-Sims. Welcome, Dr. Nicole. Thank you, Ben. Excited to be here. Yeah, so excited to have you. Um, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Klamen, Komox, Homoko, and Klehu's First Nations, who were one one borderless nation where we colonists came in and separated them into reserves. Um, also want to acknowledge that today, uh, the, I think all four of those sister nations are currently on the annual tribal canoe journey which is something worth checking out. I think this year it's called the the Paddle to Muckle Shoot, which is a, a indigenous tribe in, I think it's in Washington State. And uh, there are tribes paddling from all the way up in northern BC, down the coast, uh, Oregon, Washington. I think there's even uh, paddlers coming from Hawaii, um, wow. which I can't imagine canoeing from Hawaii to uh, Washington, but that'd be amazing. Um, and it's, it's a... Uh, yearly nation unifying cultural experience that uh, I think it's over a hundred different tribes and, or canoe families all come and, and join. And so it's a, a big event and I've been following them on Facebook and looks like they're just having a blast. And so far, except for Monday, the weather has been pretty nice. So uh, good on them. Um, yeah. So um, maybe where to start is uh, just tell us a little about yourself, uh, like kind of personally and professionally who, 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 who Dr. Dr. Holland Zims. Awesome. So I try not to take too long when I tell this story, but I'm going to just give more of the personal to start and then wrap the professional. Um, So the personal side is that I am a wife to Ron. I'm a mommy to CJ, who is five. And I was sharing with you earlier, he will be starting kindergarten in August. And so mommy is definitely trying to prepare herself for this next major transition of his life. and entering the K to 12 educational space. So definitely trying to get myself together for that. I'm also a puppy parent to Biscuit. And if there are any listeners that have golden doodles, you can share (laughs) my experience of having a young golden doodle who is very energetic and Mm. keeps our house pretty fun. So those are the things that make Nicole happy. uh, Those three people in particular. And I am coming to you from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, our Mm. capital city. Um, And so I've been here all of my life Mm. and I was able to serve as a school psychologist 
in the school district that um, represents the, the capital city, Harrisburg City School District for about eight years. And then from there, moved on to a smaller district called Susquehanna Township and continued to serve as a school psychologist. And a brief stint, I moved over to what's called the Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistance Network. In Pennsylvania, we call it PATAN or PATEN, depending mm, on what part of the yes. state you're in. Um, and that work, I was an uh, educational consultant and really specialized in positive behavior interventions and supports, or PBIS, and multi-tiered systems of support, MTSS, family engagement, school psychology. And there was another uh, project that we were connected to around increasing graduation rates for students with disabilities. And that was called the State Systemic Improvement Plan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a ton of acronyms in education and that's kind of how I was introduced to all of them was my time at Patton. And then from there, I moved on to our Pennsylvania Department of Education and I served as a special assistant to our secretary in 2021, primarily focused on the areas of equity, inclusion and belonging across the educational ecosystem. And so after that, I did a year there and then moved on to Midwest PBIS Network, which is housed in Illinois, mm. uh, but I worked remotely for them. And then last spring, <laughs> I had this thought, yeah, I wanna do it my way. So I decided to take the leap of faith and create my own consulting LLC. And that's where I'm at right now. It's only been about 90 days. So I'm still trying to figure a lot out and how business works. But I am learning a lot and loving just the freedom of being able to do the work the way I think it should be done. So wow. that's my story. Wow, that's huge. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of your training like what, how you, and, and sort of how you decided you wanted to be a school psych? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. So it started a little bit later than maybe some would expect. Mm. So when I entered college, I wasn't really sure what major I wanted to choose, but I decided I'm going to choose psychology as a, as a major undergrad. As I'm embarking on the different coursework, I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Like, I had no idea. And I'm trying to think that through. So at the time, my advisor, she called me in and she started, you know, having that advisor conversation when you graduate. Mm. What do you think is the next step? Are you looking at graduate schools? Blah, blah, blah. And so she mentioned this thing called school psychology. And she's like, you know, your mother was an educator. You talk about schools a lot in class. I'm wondering if that's the, the road you should think about. And so I started kind of researching what is a school psychologist. Still didn't really have a full understanding, but I applied for grad school at Millersville University where I did undergrad hmm. and I was accepted. And we had that first course to introduce you to school psychology. And it was foundational. You know, assessment is at the time was the big, big push. Sure. Got to do IQ and achievement testing and determine eligibility and all of that. And I was like, that, that's OK. I, I <laughs> like it. And then I start learning about consultation as a school psychologist. And what mm. does that look like when you're talking to classroom teachers and helping them think about even the structure of their classroom and, and being a coach or a resource. And I was like, I like that. So as I continue to grow in that regard, obviously coming out as a first year school psych, it was test place. That mm. was my role in internship and then moving into my career. But I was able to tap into why I really like school psychology. And that was that ability to be that guide on the side 
but initially, I honestly had no idea what school psychology was at the undergrad level, had never interfaced with a person that was a school psychologist, even as a student. So it was definitely an introduction that I ended up really, really gravitating towards and loving. You know, I just had uh, Tierra Bland on. Yeah. Uh, from the Black uh, Black uh, School Psych Network, which I, I see you're wearing your T-shirt. I'm wrapping them today. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. And we were kind of, we were, this was just a couple days ago, we were talking about, uh, kind of to your point, how no one knows what school psych is until they get into undergrad or even maybe yeah. grad, grad school. Like there's no sort of... Um, avenue for learning and so if you're a kid you know and you're and you're sort of have dreams of helping people then everyone says well I want to go into psychology and of course they don't know what that means either because psychology right. has so many different realms and often they'll take an intro to psych course and go well this is not what I thought it was going to be I think a lot of folks just maybe thought they wanted to be a counselor or something and that's what sort of all of, all of psychology is to sort of you know youth um yeah. and so why do you think that is that 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 no one they, that you don't find out about psychology until psychology? I mean, I, I took I took an intro to psych course in, in, when I did my undergrad, and I mean, they they talked about it there. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. I'm really not sure why. I think your point is well taken, though. I think there's like a popular view of what psychology psychologists are. I can even remember early on, and I don't know if you had this same experience in your undergrad having this person establish the distinction between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, mm. right? Because as a kid, if you're watching TV or you're seeing the shows, you hear people say, I'm going to go to my psychiatrist and I'm going to lay on their couch. Yes. You know, you have this, this notion of what you think it is. And then you choose psychology as the major because you think I want to help people in that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you learn about the difference between clinical psych, school counseling, school psychology. There's a gamut of things. And I wish personally that when I was in high school, that we would have had like a psychology AP course or something. We yes. didn't have that in my high school. Nowadays, I see it, but I didn't have that exposure. And I think had I had that opportunity, I may have been more sure about what I could do with a psychology undergrad degree, let alone a graduate degree, and just feel a little bit more confident in my decisions. Yeah, yeah. You talk about exposure. It's a sort of a good word for, because Tiara talked about the exposure project that uh, yes. the, the National Association of School Psychologists has. Um, and uh, can you just remind us what that is? Yeah, so I'm not as tied to it as some yeah. other colleagues that I know, but I can just speak to it kind of high level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dr. Charles Barrett has been a powerhouse in school psychology. And I can remember, I think, I think he's been at it at least 10 years. Mm. I could be wrong on that. But I can remember him saying, we need to have students understand what school psychology even looks like, sounds like, feels like. And who better than to have actual school psychologists go into these high school classrooms and really speak to it and explain mm -hmm. how it can look different for different people in what they're really skilled at. I can also say from being a Black school psychologist, I wish I would have had the opportunity to see someone who looked like me in high school, even in undergrad, to say, this is a possibility. You might be one of few, but you're really going to bring a perspective that's valuable. So since then, Charles has been very instrumental in engaging others of us in the field 
to support his effort. And NASP has really, you know, locked down and said, this is a priority for us. And he's seen the numbers increase in the amount of students who have now been exposed to school psychology. And so the goal is to hopefully say to them, we're going to grow our own. Like, we're going to make you see how relevant you can be. And if this is something you like, definitely pursue it as a career. Nice. I didn't realize that Dr. Barrett was the sort of the one that kind of started all that. And uh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm actually having him on in a couple of months. So uh, we'll have to dig awesome. into that. And he'll give me all the details. That's really cool. Yes. One more oh, talking point for Dr. Barrett. Super awesome. Yeah. Um, you, so you say that uh, kind of the your your kind of big area is equity, inclusion, and belonging, and uh, mm-hmm. these are these are really big words um, that that have I think a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people, and uh, and sometimes I think you know those meanings get lost and 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 things kind of move aside, but they often are, are part of mission statements and and so yes. on. But then beyond that, you know, there, we don't really see anything happening. I wonder if you could touch first on sort of what kind of the differences between them all, because they all kind of sound the same. Um, and then uh, and then maybe kind of we can dig into a bit uh, about kind of your work in that area. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is equity. Sure, I'd be happy to. And you're absolutely right. These terms have legs now. <laughs> like people have, they either love it or they hate it. Or mm. when they hear it, it becomes, oh, here we go again. Or yes, we definitely need to rally behind these words. I want to get beyond the words. I want to get to the action. And it's sad because there's a lot of states in our country that you can't even say the words. And mm. so when you can't even right. say them it becomes a barrier. And so I've been a big proponent lately of not being so caught up in the word, but the actual work that's being done. And so if I had to articulate what those three words mean to me or how I've Mm. understood them to be, if I had to think in triangles, and I joke because as school psychologists, we think in shapes, (laughs) educators, we think in shapes. So I'm going to give a triangle, the obligatory triangle. And as I think about that triangle, I would say that equity really sits at the base foundation Mm. of that triangle and really establishes the practices that need to happen so that everyone has access and opportunity to get what they need. So I often use the example that my husband, who loves wearing Jordan sneakers, he's a sneakerhead, Mm. he wears a size 12. If I wore that same size 12, I'd fall all over our house. Hmm. I need a size six and a half in women because that's tailored to me. And it gives me the access and the opportunity to actively walk around my house without falling. Hmm. So that's what I think of when I hear the term equity. It looks different for every person and that's purposeful. But the goal is that we don't give everyone the same thing and expect everyone to react and respond the same way because that's impossible. But equitable practices say students that may have advanced placement, you know, aspirations should have access to that. Students who need English as a second language should have access and opportunity to that. I can remember the pandemic, and I always remember March 13, 2020, as like a date that lives in infamy, especially in Pennsylvania, because that's when our governor shut our schools down. And at that time, Schools had to pivot quickly. Let's get, you know, one-to-one devices to the students. Let's think about what this looks like now. 
And what we found is that we gave access, but with that access, we had students who had no Wi-Fi. So even though there was access available, there was really no opportunity for them to actively participate. They were going to the McDonald's parking lot. They were going to the school parking lot just to get Wi-Fi. So when we talk about the reason for equity, it's as basic as that. So that's the foundation. Once we move up to the middle part of the triangle, that's where I see inclusion living. And there's a great book that I read from, excuse me, Floyd Cobb and John Cronapple. Mm. called Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity. It was a game-changing book for me, especially how I looked at how to get people to understand why we do this work. And the inclusion box, if you will, is really talking about honoring the inherent worth that each person has and honoring Mm. their dignity. So human to human, I may not agree with you, I may have come from a different place that you come from, have a totally different perspective, but I can honor the fact that you inherently have dignity that I should honor at all times. We may disagree and that's okay, but we can be in an inclusive community. So that's how I see inclusion. So equity and inclusion and at the tippy top is belonging. Hmm. And so those two authors, I love their definition. It's the one that I've adopted, really talk about this This feeling that you have when you have a sense of belonging that speaks to feeling validated, appreciated, treated fairly, and just being able to be authentically you without being overly consumed with how people may perceive you stereotypically Mm. or think about you when they first lay eyes on you. It's being able to not be consumed with that and show up as you. So that's how I sort of unpack those three terms that the goal for all of us is to get to a place where people have a sense of belonging. My husband, (laughs) he works in an intermediate unit in Pennsylvania, and he Hmm. was saying to me, so do you mean that that means we just have to accept if someone's a jerk to everybody? Is that what you mean? Hmm. And I said, I'm glad you asked me that, because if you're asking that, there's probably a million other people who are asking the same thing. And it's not that. It's really just saying that When I come to work, when I go to school, when I'm in any space where we have to collaboratively work, that you're not going to mistreat me simply because I'm showing up in a different way. Mm. So that dignity is still honored. So that's that's my answer to the three terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the the, the jerk question from your husband because it also, I mean, a jerk is also a pretty subjective term. I mean, what 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 who I think is a jerk and someone else thinks a jerk is quite different. And careful with my words here and there might be some editing but i, I wonder <laughs> I, I i there there are some folks particularly folks with disabilities you know who you know struggle have like you know social deficits and struggle with social skills and those sorts of things and sometimes they're just trying to belong i think they're trying to be part of that group but then they engage in sort of social behaviors that at least for that group might not be what they would expect mm-hmm. uh and that, and that can be then translated by that group as maybe that person being a jerk or something to that to that Good level. Um, and so, because, and you make me think about sort of, kind of, two groups which I've talked a lot about on the podcast. I'm sure there's many more that kind of fit in this. One is sort of, the neurodiverse group, um, uh, where where they often and, and both both these groups. Are, 
use versions of this term uh, where they often engage in masking behavior, it's called, oh. where they basically, so particularly I think autistic folks um, um, that, are, that are more verbal, they engage in masking behavior, which basically to basically hide their maybe stereotypical behavior or hide, you know, things that they think would make them not fit in. Um, and, and another group, which is sort of a completely different story, um, uh, you know, uh, I've talked, I've had a lot of guests on the podcast that are that are black, and they talk about um, code switching, and yes. things like that. So again, uh, you know, uh, sort of a similar concept, I suppose, to masking, where you're you're, you're hiding, um, you know, uh, your true self, uh, yes. in, or, in order to get and I think, it, I think for the neurodiverse group, often it's it's. I think often it's just it's to fit in. Sometimes it's for safety, whereas code switching is often entirely for safety. Um, and then there's some other pieces in there. Is is is? It almost seems like a. I mean, it's a great ideal to strive for, um, um, but is, is that something that's possible where groups like this can actually feel like they belong in 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 a school setting? Oh, that's such a great question. And it does feel very aspirational, right? And I've had that same type of question come to me. You know, are you, you're Pollyanna, you're pie in the sky. We're all human. We're all mm-hmm. going to have, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay to have that aspirational piece of, yes, let's create a sense of belonging where everyone feels like they can show up knowing that we may not always meet the mark, mm-hmm. but that's the goal. And I think if we at least can say to ourselves, what can we do at minimum? to create a space where at least there's a a mutual respect of some kind, where if I show up, I'm not always code switching or feeling like I have to all of the time in order for you to even hear me. I think those are the little nuances that can be thought about, can be understood. And you bringing up neurodiverse people who say, you know, I have to mask in order to even participate. Mm. That's something that many people may not even be aware of, just yeah. like some people may not know that code switching is really a thing. Sure. So to me, that's where the education around equity really begins so that the goal would be to get to a place of belonging. But at the end of the day, I at least want us to get to an inclusive community. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the goal right now, because to your point, we're all human and we're subjective in nature. And so there's a lot of things that we can't make perfect, but we at least can do the barest minimum to make sure that people are not made to feel like if they don't conform to certain things, that they're no longer allowed or given the honor and respect to be a part of our community. That's the part that I think is critical. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, belonging again can again, seem pretty far-fetched because is belonging in a school context, just sort of thinking back to some of my dreadful years in school and uh, trying to fit in and whatnot. And, and you know, there's so many, you know, groups in in a school setting, particularly high school, you know, cliques as they're sometimes called and, you know, and, and often those groups are given labels, you know, I think in the old days was the jocks and the nerds and the whatever, Um, you know, I I think, I I think we've moved on a bit from that, maybe not so far. Um, No one's ever going to belong to each and every one of those groups um, or be included in every one of those groups. So, so what, 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 what does inclusion and belonging look like in a school for, for a kid? Yeah. So I'll, I'll paint me as the example. 
Um, I was a kid who went to private school for most of my elementary years and then transitioned to middle school and seventh grade to public. Mm. And so that was a huge transition for me coming from classrooms that were maybe 10 to 12 students to now switching classes and 20 to 30 kids and feeling very sheltered in my elementary years to now coming to a space where I literally, when you talk about the categories, I was that nerd. I was that girl who wanted straight A's, who was trying to do that. And the people around me, I looked at with envy Mm. because they were popular and they were having a good time and no one wanted to sit with me at the lunch table. You know, I had to like earn my way in and I struggled. I struggled a lot with that. And so eventually a young lady who similar to me, Um, was trying to figure herself out too. This was after seventh grade. She came in eighth grade. She came over to me when I was sitting by myself and said, hey, can I sit here too? Mm. Is it okay if I sit here with you? And we've been friends since then. And that's been almost 30 years, best friend. And so to your point, it may not be this big mass movement of belonging that happens, but it's the ability for at least one person or a couple to feel like they have a connection to something in that school that keeps them wanting to come back every day. Mm. Cause you're right. We're not going to belong to every group that exists in the building, but I need to feel at least enough that I can come in there. There's someone who cares about me and that I want to be a part of this school community in some form or fashion. Mm. And I guess that's someone who cares about you doesn't necessarily, I mean, it would be nice, but it doesn't have to be a student. That's right. It it could be a teacher. It could be another professional. Mm-hmm. You talked about, um, as we're kind of delineating between belonging and inclusion and, and really striving for inclusion, um, yeah. um, but that you need equity at that base. Um, is equity at that base? To me, like, it is. <laughs> like what I mean, I guess what I mean is, is when you're working in those school settings, does equity exist? And so, you know, and so you want to get to inclusion, but you need equity first. You need equity at that base. You talked about, um, um, who was it? You were, you were talking to, um, um, uh, on, on, on an earlier podcast that I I was watching or listening to about how Mm -hmm. you used a quote that, that equity becomes the appetizer of your meal. And I, and I really like, I really like that. How, how you know, it often gets kind of pushed aside. What did you mean by that? Exactly that, that oftentimes it becomes something that sits off to the side or we taste it and then we push it away to eat the real meal. Mm. Um, That is how I've seen it play out in school districts that I've supported. And this can look like a a silo team that Mm. just talks about equity and no one else in the district does. And if there's ever an equity concern or a bias incident, for instance, it goes to that equity team. Let them handle Mm. it. Instead of collectively, us all knowing that that impacts all of us and that it shouldn't just sit in that one place. And the way that I really adopted some of that thought is from the book called Street Data. And Jamila Dugan, who is one of those co-authors, she outlined equity traps and tropes. And one of those traps is siloing equity. And what she means is exactly that. You put it with a certain group of people or with a one person, like the equity champion, quote unquote, 
or you tokenize equity and say, well, we have the one, let's say, neurodiverse person in the district. Mm. Let's put them in charge of the equity committee. Or we have the one person who identifies as LGBTQIA+, let's put them in charge or the one person of color. So all of those traps and tropes she really offers can really derail those equity efforts. And God forbid if if one of those people that really shoulders all of that says, I'm done, I'm burnt out, and they leave, that work walks out the door with them. Mm. And then students who were benefiting from that effort won't get the same level of pardon me, support that they were getting before. So that appetizer analogy really comes from that siloing effect. Mm. And just thinking, I want to I want to get into sort of the, the nuts and bolts of what you do in the schools, but kind of going mm-hmm. back to the that piece around sort of this equity silo. Um, uh, I know from some previous interviews I've had with like folks like Dr. Malone and Dr. Bland and, yeah. and others that there's a there's a real problem with retention of black school psychologists because yes. there aren't like systems in place to support them. And they're often assigned to like the equity role or the quote unquote DEI role. And then they're, right. it's their job now to deal with microaggressions and other things that kind of happen in the schools. Um, and then and often that leads to burnout because, you know, they want to go into a system that's supporting them equitably as well. How, right. how have you kind of navigated those issues? Wow. So I, th- that's a great question because it's not been easy mm. <laughs> by any means. And I think earlier when I mentioned my professional journey and I said, you know, I was really at a place where I wanted to kind of do this myself, that really comes out of that feeling mm. of always being the go-to or always feeling like I'm the face of something. Yeah. And not always knowing whether the support was genuine around what I was talking about or whether it was convenient. Mm-hmm. So we're trying as an organization to push something, and I'm just using organization loosely. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're trying as an organization to push something, and it looks good to have someone like Nicole at the forefront talking about this topic because we all don't feel comfortable doing it, but she does. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, the burden of that can get really heavy. And right. based on that, you got to make some tough decisions. And so that's where I really think about that appetizer analogy that I can't just be the appetizer. This work can't just be the appetizer. It has to be all of our work. And it can't just live in one person, because if that person gets tired or that person gets another opportunity that affords them more support, they're going to do it. And you don't want to leave people in a bad place, but at the same time, to preserve your peace, you do it. And so that has been literally my experience. And I can remember, it's funny because Facebook has a funny way of reminding you of things. And so (laughs) in 2010, apparently, this must have been a month or so ago, my memories popped up. And in 2010, I was in my doctoral coursework. And I can remember just, I won't out anybody, but we had a professor who was pretty staunch in his beliefs. And I remember being that person in the class who would not push back so much because I recognized the power dynamic, but Mm. I would question and I would say different things. And I remember I put on Facebook 2010. I wonder if it really is my job to be the expert in cultural confidence. And I look back at that now and I'm like, holy cow, 
what a crystal ball moment. (laughs) At that time, I didn't think, you know, and I was really annoyed when I did that, Mm -hmm. but how it was, it was purposeful that I was that person and how I was able to grow myself professionally to be more humble about being culturally competent and wanting to help others get to a place to be the same. So Mm. it's just interesting when you think of your journey and how those things can really impact you and also let you know it's time to move on. Mm. So Mm. that, that piece that you mentioned around Dr. Malone, Dr. Bland saying retention is so critical. It is because for many of us, we didn't feel safe. We had to co-switch every day and that's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, is, is that, is, is that, Unfortunately, the answer then is sort of if you're in a in a context where you know you're burning out and you're you're just feeling those pressures and everything is working in a silo and, and and you're trying to create sort of equity for these students, but you can't even get equity for yourself. Is, is the answer often just to move on? It was the answer for me. Mm. I wish that that wasn't the answer. Yeah. I can look back at many opportunities and places that I was in and I I beat myself up a lot to be perfectly transparent. Mm. I know we're not in therapy, (laughs) but I'm just going to say it. Like I beat myself up sometimes feeling like maybe I left prematurely and I didn't get to see the full fruit of that effort. Um, In particular, there's one that just is constantly beating me up um, Mm. recently. Mm. And I'm like, had I just stayed, would it look different? Would the work have looked different? And so I really want to encourage people that may be experiencing the same thing to know that you made the decision that made sense at the time. Yeah. If you can hold out, (laughs) try to hold out, but don't feel like you've let everyone down. Mm. If you have to make the choice that actually may help someone else and you don't even realize it. So that's the self-talk I've had to engage around, but yeah, I wish that I could tell people to just stick it out but their journey is going to look so different. I know for me, I had to move on. Yeah. Well, and I don't know that that'd be really healthy advice to tell them to stick it out either. I mean, yeah. I think, I think, you know, um, someone like you, a lot of folks look up to and, and so, you know, if, if Nicole stuck it out, then I can stick it out and uh, that could lead to burnout and, and an actual illness, you know, or more, yes. or maybe leaving the field altogether. And so, altogether. yeah, yeah. So now, now you're in a, you're in a place where you obviously feel a bit safer and, and are able to kind of do this work. So what the, what the, these are big things: inclusion and belonging, and and and, mm-hmm. and 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 equity, and so on. So on. How do you make that happen in in a school setting, let alone a district setting? Like the what the work you do is just daunting to me and mind blowing. It is to me, too, (laughs) at times. Um, What I love, though, and that's the beauty of school psychology, and I don't know if Dr. Malone and Dr. Bland said this, too, but I'm pretty sure they feel this way. Yeah, We are, I don't know the word. I've heard it from a colleague, Dr. Jason Peterson. He called us the smartphone of education, Mm. meaning we have skill sets in a whole bunch of different areas. And until you get kind of put in those spaces where you have to activate one of those or push the app for one of those, you don't realize how many skills you've actually acquired. So I would say that part of what keeps me balanced in the work that I'm doing now is to not feel like a one trick pony. 
Because the equity, inclusion, and belonging work can be so daunting, I look for other opportunities to maybe get better at leadership coaching or Mm. get better at how to embed equity into MTSS and start to blend some of these things as it should be. And that's the part. It's having people understand that EIB is what I call it, is a part of everything we do. We just may not recognize it as such. And so Mm. I feel like that's my job is to help schools and districts look at their current inventory of practices and say, how can we make this more equitable? Or what are we already doing that's equitable and we can enhance it or take it to a 2.0 level? Mm. That's what I hope my consultation can do. I also like to do workshops and support districts that way. But one thing that I say to them, similar to that traps and tropes discussion, I am not a spray and pray consultant. I don't like coming in for a one-time thing Mm. and then walking away because I know that there's nothing that will make anyone change their practice by sitting and listening to me for a kickoff keynote and then saying, oh, I learned so much from Nicole and I'm going to do everything different. It's not possible. None of us function that way. That ongoing technical assistance and coaching is necessary. And I think that's where sometimes schools and districts miss the mark, particularly with EIB work, because they feel like it's a checkbox that they have to do. And that's not shaming them. It's just what's happening in their district, maybe the pressures that they're under. And they're like, let's get someone in here to talk about that so we can say we did it. Mm. And that's been a challenge for me. And I've shared this story before. So if you've heard me say it, forgive me, but it really kind of shifted my thinking out of that spray and pray mode. There was a school district in around 2018 that asked me to come and do that kickoff keynote as teachers returned to school in in August, and they wanted to talk about equity. So I have to say that too, like equity didn't just start, the work around it didn't just start in 2020, like a lot of people think it was going on. So I was asked to come. And when I met with the upper administration prior to that, they were saying things like, well, can we see your PowerPoint and all of those things? And I Oh, okay. A little odd, but okay. And they started saying, you know, you have too many, too many words. You just need a picture. Like they were critiquing those things. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I made those adjustments and I said, I can make those adjustments easily. And at the end of the meeting, the assistant superintendent looked at me and he said, I just want you to know that we recognize that we brought in the cliche black chick to talk about equity. Mm. And I was like, Ooh, like mm-hmm. that, talk about not even microaggression, like yeah, straight her. in. Yeah. Um, and so I had to kind of sit in that moment in shock. Number one, that that was said out loud in front of others. And second, no one else commented. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, oh, maybe I took it wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like process all of that in the moment. But what that said to me once I had that chance to process it was this is a checkbox for them. Yep. Because he even verbalized it. (laughs) And so it was at that time that I said, I'm not going to do these things in this spray and pray type approach. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives Black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, 
The benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is street. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that, that's really good. And that's probably good, a good take home for a lot of folks that do key, keynotes, because I, I know what that's like to go to a keynote and get all pumped up and excited, go yeah. to a big conference, you're all energized on the Monday when you get back and, right. and, you, and you start talking to everybody and spewing out stuff that no one wants to hear. <laughs> and and uh, by, by, by Thursday, you're, you're back to sort of the same old because, you know, no, no one else was at that conference getting boosted, boosted the way you were getting. And unless you sort of have the tools or the relationships to kind of dig in, then, then, then you're kind of hooped. Yes. Thinking about relationships, your job, school psychologists, I just have, I have so much admiration for that they're, you know, that they don't burn out regardless of sort of the, the, the equity piece for themselves. Yeah. Um, because they, they just take on such daunting tasks. I know, I know your big focus is on, on systems and mm-hmm. uh, and systems just are. I like systems too, but smaller ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just I, I sort of think about sort of, and I don't know if, if there's a parallel, but I sort of think about in my field of uh, behavior analysis, uh, we have a mm-hmm. lot of behavior consultants that go into schools and kind of do this kind of work, and it's often a fight sometimes to literally get in the door of these schools to get it, you know, a meeting with the principal or, and, and, and ask what, and tell them what, what, you know, what you want to do and build some relationships, uh, let alone, you know, making systemic change. What's that been like for you as far as, as far as, you know, getting buy-in and, 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 and getting folks interested in doing that work. I mean, it's one thing that you're there, but, you know, beyond, beyond like the art, like, unless someone's actually kind of requesting Holland Sims consultation to come out. And even then they might not be, they might be requesting it, but not knowing what they're looking for. What's it been like to try to get buy-in and and what have been your ways, ways towards that? Yeah, it's been the good part about at this point in my career is that I've experienced what you shared Mm. about coming in or trying to get your foot in the door, even in the principal's office. And so that has been kind of a way to, build up my, my skill set to, mm. and I wouldn't say skill set, my patience. Mm. It's really built my patience because early in my career, and again, coming out of grad school, you're kind of to that pump up analogy. Yeah. You're kind of pumped up. Like I'm the one who knows this and they're going to want me. And, and so you expect that when you come into a district, they're going to welcome you with open arms and want to hear about these great new things you learned in school And it's not at all like that. Mm. And you kind of have to sit back and realize that there's a a system that has been at play for a very long time. And how do you find your way in that system? And so achieving buy-in for me early on was figuring out who are the players in this building? Who are the people that the teachers are listening to? Who Mm. are the people that the administrators are listening Mm. to? And how do I build a rapport with those people or that person Mm. so that I can get some insight or the floor (laughs) to be able to have an opportunity to say what I think makes sense? And that wasn't always easy to navigate, especially early on in my career. But as I grew 
in the work and figured out those people. I didn't, I wouldn't say use them because that's not what I mean, but you develop rapport and relationship with people to the point that they start to see you as someone that's valuable to the team Mm -hmm. and someone that should be at the table when decisions are being made, but it takes time. And that's where the patience part I had to work on. So for instance, in the one building that I worked in, it was a five through eighth grade building and we got a new principal. Mm. And when the new principal came, everyone was afraid of her. And they were like, she only likes certain people and she's going to do it her way. You know, you get the stories. And so I said, okay, Nicole, I could either go on one of two ways. One, I could have stayed away from her, far away from her and just stayed in my little cubby mm. doing my testing and going home. Or... I could try to see who's connected with her, how they are interpreting her and have the opportunity to maybe get a one-on-one. It just so happened that the reading specialist at my school had a chance to meet with the principal and she and the principal hit it off. Mm. And thankfully I had a relationship with that reading specialist so that Mm. you're going to know that I'm old at this point. We had the IST meetings, instructional support team meetings. And I was asked to come and the principal was there because this reading specialist said, Hollins needs to be here because she's the school psychologist and she does this and she does that. Mm. And it opened that door for me to say, okay. And then I said, I have this 15 minutes with her. What can I do with this time to let her know that I know my stuff essentially. And in that moment, that was achieving buy-in. So it's those little things that as you start to gain credibility with the people that have influence, that that buy-in becomes a little bit more easier. Now, when we tried to implement PBIS in that same building, that was harder (laughs) than trying to get the principal to at least recognize my role and function. Yes. Uh, Because that was a big paradigm shift, especially at a middle school. And I remember when we were trained in PBIS, we were told we had to turn it around to our faculty. And I remember I had to be like the spokesperson because I was deemed the coach, the internal mm-hmm. coach for that mm-hmm. building. And I came in and I'm, PBIS stands for, you know, 101. So I'm taking them through it and I will never forget it. The union president worked at our school and she stood up and she basically turned her back to me. Wow. And just said, here we go again. Here's the brand new thing they're bringing. It's not going to work. like." It was very clear, no (laughs) buy-in. We don't want to do this. We don't want to hear it. We've been through this. Mm -hmm. And so again, patience had to be the virtue. Mm -hmm. And I had to say, okay, I'm going to start with small pockets of classes, try to build it up that way. And eventually, two years later, because we know systems change takes a long time. Two years later, we were able to achieve in PBIS world fidelity at tier one. Meaning the state came in, they did like a walkthrough, they did an assessment, and they said, you're meeting criteria for fidelity at tier one, which was huge for that building. We also put in swag, like we had t-shirts, things to make it cool to be at this building that had previously had a poor reputation. Hmm. And I remember at the end of the year, that same union president came to me and was like, I didn't really believe in that stuff, but you showed that it can actually be done. And I was like, that was the win. So buy-in for me has always been a big deal. And I kind of don't like the word buy-in anymore. Mm. I like the word believe in 
because a colleague of mine, Kelly Perales from Midwest PBIS, she was telling me that buy-in you can opt out of, mm. even means you're in it and you want it to happen. And mm. I'm not going to make everyone believe. I understand that. But if I can at least get a chunk of people to believe, we can move a system. And so that's kind of been a mantra that I've been adopting, particularly now in this role um, with districts that are, to your point, they hear Holland Sims, they sign up, and then I come in and say, this is what we need to do. And they're like, what? (laughs) So it's figuring out where to make the inroads and understand that you got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Believe in. Mm -hmm. You talked about... uh... Now, I know what you're talking about, but not maybe not the listeners will talk about uh, know, know what you're talking about. You're talking about sort of PBIS and MTSS. Yes. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about what, what that is, what that means, and then how how you do kind of how you sort of embed equity work into sort of the multi-tiered systems? Love to. So that's exactly what it is. MTSS is multi-tiered systems of support. And remember earlier, I was joking that we think in shapes. And this really ties back to that shape Mm. analogy. So in multi-tiered systems of support, it's a three-tiered logic model. Mm. Comes from public health models from way back in the day around vaccinations and the population. Yeah. So how I was instructed was that if at least 80% of the population responds well to a vaccination, you're, you're good. Universally, we could apply that vaccination. Then you have some people who need that vaccination plus an additional preventative measure Mm. to be able to be well. That's tier two. And then at tier three, you have the the base. They get every they get the vaccination. They get the additional support, but they may need something even more individualized. Mm. And that's the tier three. The same logic applies in school settings where the goal is that at least 80 percent of your student population should be able to actively respond well to whatever core curriculum you are implementing, whether that's reading, math, behavior, because talking a behavior person, <laughs> behavior is something that we have to teach. Yeah. It's not something that we can just expect people to know or students rather to know how to do and what to do with it. So discipline means to teach, not to punish. So we have to mm. think about things in a different way. And that's how multi-tiered systems of support really works. Universally, We should be able to put some core things in place. At the tier two level, we layer tier two onto tier one. So they're still getting the same core, but now they get something a little bit more specialized to their small group Mm. of need. Then tier three is more individualized. And at that point, at tier three, you're making some decisions. You're determining whether or not we can move up and down the tiers, meaning they're starting to really respond well. Let's move them back down to tier two or tier one. Or you're saying they need really specialized services and we may be moving to more of a special education eligibility or gifted placement, whatever Mm -hmm. the case. You can move up and down in those ways. So that's multi-tiered systems of support in a nutshell Mm -hmm. that really focuses on academics on one side, behavior on the other, and some would argue social emotional competencies are undergirding all of that triangle, Mm -hmm. which is how I have been uh, trained and taught. Yeah. is essentially that behavior side of the triangle. And in that same vein, you're moving up or down that tiered logic and figuring out which students need what supports based on the data that you're getting from, let's say, office discipline referrals, visits to the nurse, all of these different data points and sources 
We want to analyze and also disaggregate. So when you ask, how do you embed equity into these uh, this framework, because it is a framework, mm-hmm. is disaggregating the data to have that data tell you a story mm-hmm. to say, this group of students, they're getting ODRs for disrespect, but everyone else is not getting disrespect referrals mm-hmm. at 12 noon at lunch. Gotcha. What's the problem here? Let's start doing some root cause analysis to think differently about who are the staff on at 12 noon? This is probably lunch. Do the students know the expectations? Have we reviewed them? Have they bought into the expectations or are they just posted on a wall? All of these parts really speak to the value of embedding equity into PBIS. We get a lot of pushback in PBIS world about the lack of engaging family, students, communities in the development of all of the pieces and practices of the framework. And mm. I'm one also agree. I think it's important to make sure that students have a voice in it, yeah. families, communities, et cetera. We can't just think we know all <laughs> and say, these are the expectations for this school because that's what works. Because for, to your point about subjectivity, from one classroom to another, respect is going to look really different. So we need to get input on what respect looks like in our building from all of the people that are accessing our environment. Yeah. And I don't really work in schools. Is that data readily available or or is that something that you have to put in place to make PBIS work? Good question. So it depends on the district you're in. Most times a school district will have some form of a system in their student management system that allows them to collect office discipline referrals, for instance, Mm. or suspension data. Sometimes they have to report that back to their state. So they collect it anyway. Where I find districts are lacking is the access or the ability for their system to disaggregate. Mm. And because of that lack, they end up misstepping because they don't have that data in front of them to drive their action more accurately. They're kind of spitballing, for lack of a better term, on what they think's happening, but the the numbers aren't really there to back that up. Mm. So you may hear in, in team meetings, someone say, you know, fifth grade at lunch is off the chain or they are acting up so much. And yet when you pull the data for fifth grade, it may not be that many students that are getting referred. It might be a mm. couple, <laughs> but right. in a team meeting without that information, you're going to assume you should pour your energy into fifth grade at lunch when really eighth grade at lunch is the one with the highest amount of referrals. So you could miss misstep a lot of times, to your point, without the access to a system that allows you to do that. There's a system called SWISS, which is the school-wide information system. It's out of the Mm. University of Oregon that districts can buy into. And I'm not here to promote them. I'm just saying they're the system that I used when I was an internal coach. And they allow that opportunity for you to disaggregate data, but also what they call drill down. So remember I said fifth grade at lunch or eighth grade at lunch, Swiss will do that for you in those drill Mm. down reports. And you can look at that data consistently. Now, the data is only as good as those that enter it. (laughs) Yes. So that's the other part of this that you have to be sure that you're not having, I like to say, dirty data. Because if it's dirty data, then you're going to continue to misstep. So all Mm. of these pieces, when you get trained in PBIS, 
are part of the infrastructure building that has mm. to happen for it to really thrive and survive. So you'll learn things on like how to disaggregate, how to categorize the data, yes. how to do all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's cool. Um, talk about um, uh, kind of, uh, I think in one of your other interviews about kind of developing uh like an equity and inclusion toolkit, and then this equitable practice hub. You've got these things. What are what are those? Oh, great. Okay, so you're gonna make me feel really good that I did something right in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so the equitable practices hub really was a brainchild in 2019 mm. because what we were finding, to your point about school districts really not knowing what they don't know, but they wanted to do something. And in my head, I was like, it would be so cool if there was a one-stop shop where you could find vetted resources mm. that are dedicated to certain components of equitable practices. And so in my head, I was thinking, hmm, we need like maybe five or six things that tell people what equity can be mm. and how it can look in schools. Because I love the question about what does that mean? How do you put equity in place in a school? And I get it. So in collaboration with a lot of other partners in Pennsylvania, we have, as I mentioned, intermediate units that are regionally based. They each had an equity point of contact. And this is when I was working for Patton. So I oversaw all of those points of contact. And collaboratively, we said, let's call them pillars of practice. So mm. the six equity pillars of practice are part of the Equitable Practices Hub, which if you go to the link via our Pennsylvania Department of Education website, you can access it right away. Hmm. And then it's organized in three categories or spheres, school and district, classroom and individual. Hmm. So let's say, Ben, you and I individually want to get better at one of the pillars that's self-awareness. So that's hmm. understanding bias, understanding how I show up, all of those things. I'm going to go to the individual sphere and the self-awareness pillar. And there's a litany of vetted resources that can help me do my own self-paced professional learning wow. so that I have a better understanding of what that means in schools. Similarly, if you're a superintendent or you're a principal, you could go to the school and district sphere and maybe data practices is one of the pillars. You could go there and get more information on how do I disaggregate? Why do I disaggregate? Wow. What does your cause analysis look like? And so that was the brainchild, and it launched in uh, September of 2020, so it's almost mm. three years old, which is crazy to think about. But it's been a hit in Pennsylvania. I've tried to really get more and more people to access it because, again, it's a one-stop shop. So you don't have to worry about going to this link, that link. It's all right there, and it's organized in a way that, at the time, our collective group thought would be useful. Out of that, that was the, the second part. The first thing that we developed was that equity and inclusion toolkit. Mm. And that came out in 2017, I believe. Um, and that was because at the time, mm. the presidential election in 2016, the results of that in America, everyone was on polar opposites. They continue yes. to be. Yes. Um, but that was such a, a pivotal moment. And we had a lot of incidents happen in our schools in Pennsylvania that really lent themselves to being kind of an outgrowth of the reaction to the election. 
one that went viral. And sadly, um, it led to a sit-in by students because students that were in support of the former president were walking down the hall with, we're building the wall signs, you know, that type of thing. And then the students that didn't agree with that wanted to stage a sit-in and the administrators were sitting in the middle like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm supposed to support every child and yet I'm stuck in between. And it wasn't an easy solution. I was dispatched to go support. And so part of that bring back what I learned is part of that equity and inclusion toolkit. And that's when I was brought on as a special consultant to support the department around equity. And that toolkit came out of it. So those were just things that I'm really proud is a hard word, but I'm I'm glad that I was a part of that work mm-hmm. and hoping that that work continues to live thankfully beyond me and my time at the Department of Education because it's it's beneficial and I hope that people continue to use it. And and is it a, it sounds awesome. Is it something that's useful outside of Pennsylvania? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So any educators and I would say you know our our audience was educators. Mm-hmm. But from that individual sphere or anybody that just has an interest in this it's not a bad idea to just take a tour of it and see, you know, if there are things that connect or resonate with you. But mm. yeah, it should be nationwide. I would love for it to be nationwide. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we can help push that that way. Something, another kind of component that you talked about, I, I was li- listening to your interview with uh, Dr. McClure on, yeah. on his Healing Conversations podcast. That's such a great yes, podcast. It is. And, and, uh, and, and, and I, I love the work he does. You guys dive into an area that I've I've talked about before on the podcast um, called deficit thinking. Um, uh, I had a fella on a while back, uh, Grant Bruno. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta, and he's an Indigenous uh, researcher and uh, also a father of two autistic boys. And, and he's doing a lot of research around uh, um, um autism in first nations communities uh, which is really fascinating and yeah. something something he talks a lot about related to indigenous folks is is that everything is based on this deficit discourse mm. uh and that sort of you know basically we look at indigenous folks and as sort of inherently problematic and they have inherent mm. They're, they're sort of as soon as you're born, you you have deficits right away because you're indigenous. Uh, sometimes that goes so far, you know, as to you know per- exclude them from sort of you know diagnoses and whatnot. So, for example, the autism diagnosis often doesn't doesn't happen for indigenous folks. Instead, they get the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder diagnosis instead because of the assumption that all indigenous mothers are alcoholics and and therefore it must be FASD. This can't be autism. And of Mm. course, you know, not to rant too much, but what that of course leads to is 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 no services because there's no funding and services for FASD where there's lots for ASD. And so they lose out and then their entire sort of you know education sort of career is 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 is, you know it's driven off the road what what is deficit thinking and kind of how does that fit into your practice and the work you're doing yeah i'm just still processing what you just shared Mm. that that's heavy that is so heavy and it really does speak to this mindset that people have 
Um, and I love Dr. McClure, Dr. Reed. I, their book is fantastic around mm. hacking deficit thinking. Mm. I think for me, when I hear that term, I automatically go to people who don't give credit um, to the strength, resilience, courage that a lot of people have. They automatically go to the easy route, in my opinion, which is to mm. find fault or to find an issue. So as you were talking about the example you provided around fetal alcohol syndrome, I can mm. think of my son mm. as a black boy and he's five. Yeah. And so I was sharing with you earlier that I'm really stressed about him going into the K-12 system. Yeah. And it really, it really begins with that thought that he will be thought of immediately before he even opens his mouth in a deficit way. Yeah. Um, because of the systemic barriers and biases that people already have in their mind when they meet a young black boy. And mm -hmm. that's unfortunate. Um, and I think that's the part that when we talk about equity, inclusion, and belonging, that deficit thinking piece has a place because we have to do that self-awareness work to mm. figure out how we may even be complicit, even though we're aware of it, mm. we may feed in to some of that. And I'll give you an example. So sitting in a meeting, you know, and you're talking about students, for instance, and someone says, well, you know, their dad's in jail. So what can mm. we expect? You know, so automatically, if no one corrects that or no one addresses that comment, we've now become complicit in that mm. deficit mindset and have put a label without a term, but a label on that young person yes. that may not have anything to do with the dad being in jail. But that's that's what we've done. We've put that on them and we've mm. already taken away, in my opinion, their ability to really be successful in our setting because we're looking at them through a lens of pity, through a lens of they'll never amount to anything. Even if that's not what we truly think, our actions may show that. And that's why, to me, those deficit mindsets impact the ability to have fruitful relationships with that one caring adult or multiple caring adults because it's always sort of in the background. Yeah. So even that savior complex. Yeah, right. Savior complex that some of us adopt. And again, I'm not trying to shame anybody. I've just seen it. I've even been guilty of it where it's like, oh, if I could just take them home. They don't need you to take them home. Mm. They have a family. Your deficit mindset because you don't know what strengths may exist in that family just because it doesn't match your version of what you think family should look like and operate like. Yeah. Does the hub provide resources for that as well? I don't know that we go that deep, <laughs> but there's definitely some initial like introductory type resources that get you there and hopefully will make you thirsty for a little bit more. Well, yeah, just, if I have I'm to just, take a look, I think we don't go that. Yeah, deep. I'm just thinking of your example of uh, of of you know uh, we we hear that the the the, the kid's dad's in jail, mm -hmm. um, and you said and then no one responds. Mm -hmm. How how should someone respond in that moment? Like because I know I know just in general in in life, and I'm sure you're, you're you, like everyone. You're like, I wish I thought of that in that moment yes. and, and and now it's too late or maybe it's not yeah. too late. So how do you respond to kind of things like that? So you can sort of shift it back to the positive. Yeah. So actually in the hub, I'm going to reference something that I've had to use a lot 
<clears throat> and it comes from Learning for Justice. They were formerly called Teaching Tolerance. Um, but Learning for Justice has this pocket guide called Speak Up to Bias. Mm. And I love it because it's really designed for students, but really adults need it too. Mm -hmm. And what they talk about are four steps. And one is to interrupt. So if someone says, you know, their dad's in jail, ideally, I should be able to interrupt that and go, wait a minute, let's take a pause and not just let the conversation continue to go on. So that's one. Mm. The second one is to question. And what they mean by that is not to say, how dare you say that? I can't believe you said that, but rather tell me more mm. or where's that coming from? Mm. You know, just probing so that it mm. doesn't feel accusatory or, you know, aggressive, but yeah. I just unpack what you mean. And then number three is to educate. And number three in that way means, so let's say you and I are kind of at the table and that person says it and I go, you know, my dad was in jail. I think I turned out pretty good. Mm. I don't think that's a fair assumption to make that because his dad's in jail, that he doesn't have capabilities. And that's not really in our control. Yeah. What we can control is what's happening in our school. That's the education part. And number four is echo. So Ben, if you're sitting there and I say what I just said and you go, you know, Nicole's right. I really don't think that we should spend any more time focused on something we can't control. That's the four-step process. That is not easy to do, <laughs> but it at least gives you the tools to be a little bit more cognizant and the practice. You even may need to role play it with someone yeah. uh, to get more comfortable kind of interrupting those cycles. I have a colleague who would say, you need to address things in the moment. My personality is not that. Mm -hmm. So I just want to give some grace to people who may feel a little hesitant that I can't do it in the moment but I can have a conversation with you after. Yeah. That's okay. I think it just really depends on the fact that the conversation has to happen <laughs> no matter what. No, I love that. And I love, I love the fourth one, especially because if you are that kind of person that isn't going to come up with the Nicoleisms right away, <laughs> um, at least you can support her and, and, yes. and then support the conversation because it, 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 it's, it's gotta be tough to also be the one, only one bringing those things up. Yes. And then everyone else just stays silent. Right. That's yeah. where you get burned out quickly. Yes, yes, hundred <laughs> um, percent. As we're kind of wrapping up, I want to talk a little bit more about the T-shirt you're wearing. Um, okay. And uh, as when it comes to sort of black school psychologists, um, I'm wondering about if if you have uh, have a lot of students that listen, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for kind of young. We've already talked about sort of some of the issues that folks can run into, especially earlier in their career. Yeah. Advice for young black school psychologists entering the field. I think there, there's certainly some good advice for all, all school psychologists, but um, you know, we, we've already heard about a lot of some of these barriers for, for black folks in the field. And so if they, if they've, you know, you know, been able to sort of overcome all the things that you're thinking about for CJ, as mm -hmm. far as from K to 12 and all the barriers of that, that they're going to run into and have been, been now able to, you know, make it to university and, and get that degree. And, and, and often I think, particularly in these school psych programs, not all of them, but some of the school psych programs can also be pretty inclusive and, and, and give you a real good sense of belonging, depending on where you've gone. Um, okay. um, but then you get out of that school and now you're in the real world and, and do you have any sort of advice for those young folks that are just 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 leaving school entering the field 
The third secret word is network. Yeah, so what I find to be helpful and what I was hoping to give back once I was eligible to is to serve as an intern supervisor. Hmm. And so when students are coming on to internship, I really wanted to be that that face, I hate to say it that way, but that person to help them develop their skills even further and also allow them to shadow me to see kind of what I had to navigate as a form of preparation of what they may encounter when they go out into the field, almost like a kind of get yourself ready because this is what it's going to be like. Um, The other thing I would say is if there are groups in your area that meet regularly or that you can establish Mm. among other like-minded or other school sites that look like you, do it. That's why for me, this BSPN network, which is so new and yet feels like we've been together a long time because we've been in circles and didn't even realize how connected we all were. But to be able to have folks like Dr. McClure, Dr. Bland, Carlita Joseph, uh, Dr. Edwards, just say, we're going to take this by the horns and we're going to actually make it a thing. That was huge. And the opportunity that we had in Atlanta to have our first like summit where we all got together was so invigorating and just empowering. And so any place where you can find spaces, affinity group spaces, um, places where you can be authentic, that space of belonging, that's going to be helpful for you coming out into the field. And Mm. so try not to isolate yourself if you can, because that isolation is going to play into your burnout if you're not careful. So I would say seek out NASP, for instance, has a way that you can make connections, our national association. Also, um, the American Psychological Association, APA, chapter Mm. 16 is the school psychology chapter. Mm. If you connect with them, they have ability for you to connect with other school sites that may be in your state or in your area. I would just say find community. I have a colleague that says that all the time. Find your community of resistance. And resistance Mm. doesn't mean to fight up against, but resisting that burnout that may come. Um, So that's my advice. Find your community and just continue to thrive. And hopefully you can thrive together because a mentee is pouring into a mentor just as much, even Mm. if they don't realize it. That's awesome. You talked about the BSPN and imagine, obviously that's another great resource for new folks coming into the field that's only been available for for a a very short time. I saw you posted on LinkedIn a few months ago, kind of related to this conference. You, wrote, you said the, the, the Black School Psycho- Psychologist Network produced the most intentional, responsive, yes. and meaningful conference I've ever attended in my professional career. I'm honored to be able to say I attended and spoke at this inaugural and historic event that was that was truly done for the culture. Yes. Can, 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 you, can you expand a little more on that? What what, what made this this conference so amazing? I, I know that it I know that when I talked to Dr. Bland, you know, it uh I think I think the network came in came came to be in like 2022 and and yeah. and almost a year to the date later they had this super conference that that everybody loved i followed it on twitter the pictures were yes. amazing and the the joy everyone was experiencing was awesome it just looked like something that has been happening for 30 years like i know it's <laughs> crazy what why why was this so amazing for you i i mean i really feel like it and they titled it homecoming 
Mm. Um, and if you're familiar with Black communities and um, HBCUs and yes. this homecoming vibe that yes. you get, that's why I think it was so powerful because mm. it was really, like I said, intentional. They mm. were very intentional about making sure that we all felt like we belong there and that we deserved to be there. And I think we don't get those opportunities and it's not to poo-poo any other organization. It's just that we don't often get those chances to collaboratively be together and learn from each other in a way where we can show up as us and not have to code switch and not have Mm. to worry about, oh my gosh, if I say this, it's going to end up on a podcast (laughs) (laughs) and then it'll end up all over a viral network. You know, those worries weren't there. And we could have some real deep conversations and have like an unspoken understanding that I don't know would always happen in the other networks that we're a part of. And so for me, it was the first time I did not attend an HBCU. My husband did. So Mm. he actually came along with me and he was like, oh, this was the best thing ever. It made me think of my, you know, my college years. And I never experienced that. Mm. I went to a predominantly white institution, right. all of my schooling, K-12 and college, grad school, everything, PWI. And so to do this was like, what? It just felt so mm. surreal yeah. and yet amazing all at the same time. And so that's why I think it was just so powerful, particularly for someone like me. And I can speak for a few others who have had a similar kind of educational trajectory and not have had that experience before. And it's something that I told them, I'm like, I hope you do this every year because I need it. Like it fills your cup so much. Yeah. And kind of answering sort of the student question, uh, Dr. Blanel said there was, I think there was like 500 people attending, but she said there was close to 200 of them were students. She's right. It was amazing to see. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Right on. Well, uh, how, how can people find you if they want to kind of learn more or 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 get get some consultation from the new company? Uh, cool. So you can find me a, a number of different ways. Ben, as you know, I love social media. So <laughs> you will see me on LinkedIn. Holland Sims Consultation is on LinkedIn. You can also search for me under Dr. Nicole Holland Sims and find me easily. Um, that's probably the best place to find me, actually. Mm. I'm on Twitter sometimes, but LinkedIn is a really good spot for my stuff. Um, As far as my website, it's www.hollandsimsconsult.com. And you can reach me by email at info, I-N-F-O, at hollandsimsconsult.com. So please reach out. I love to connect. And this has just been great talking to you, Ben. Well, that's awesome. And I know that uh, you you must have a good uh, web designer person, because I know when I type your name into Google, Holland Sims consultation is the first thing that comes up. And so uh, people can get right to it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was so awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks.